The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Indeed, we gather here in the nave of Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue, across the airwaves of WBUR 90.9 FM, and via internet signals at WBUR.org, with hearts and voices uplifted in the praise of God. This week, we continue our National Summer Preacher Series, focusing around the theme of Darwin and faith. In this year of the bicentennial of Darwin's birth, and the sesquicentennial of the publication of his landmark on the origin of species. I am Brother Larry Whitney, University Chaplain for Community Life here at Marsh Chapel, and I have the privilege of addressing you on our theme this morning. Furthermore, Mr. Justin Blackwell leads the Marsh Chapel Summer Choir in this final week before the full choir returns. Dean Hill sends his regards as he is away in these weeks. He will be back among us next Sunday to conclude our series. As you are so moved, we would invite your participation in our life together by presence, response, support, and ministry among us. For those listening on airwaves and internet signals especially, you may wish to follow us on Facebook or Twitter. More information about social networking, the podcast, and an opportunity for online giving are available on the Marsh Chapel website, bu.edu chapel. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God. church, being gathered together in unity by your Holy Spirit, may show forth your power among all peoples, to the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated for a time of silent confession during the singing of the Kyrie.
If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against the enemies of blood and flesh, but against its rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all of the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me, but to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly, as I must speak. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray responsively verses from Psalm 84 with the Antiphon. dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, indeed it faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, 
where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Happy are those who live in your house, ever singing your praise. Happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. The God of gods will be seen in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, happy is everyone who trusts in you. rise up, in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, for the singing of the Gloria Dei, the reading of the Gospel, and the singing of our hymn. Christ according to St. John, chapter 6, verses 56 through 69. Glory to you, O Lord. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. While many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe, and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ.
Well, here we are, in an unair-conditioned nave in the peak of the Boston summer. And after nine weeks of sermons on Darwin and faith, we are almost to the end of our summer series, turning to our second string as we round the last bend. We feel the heat and humidity. We feel the intellectual weight of our topic. We feel, yes, let us confess it, a bit distracted by the national debates on healthcare reform, by our preference to be at the beach right now, and by the prospect of the Red Sox trouncing the Yankees at least as badly as they did last night. Today, dear friends, amidst the heat and humidity, the gravitas of evolutionary theory, and our myriad distractions, we attend to our feelings. Let us pray. O oh God, when I speak, may a message be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Amen. That religion has primarily to do with feeling, not knowing or doing, was a central claim for Friedrich Schleiermacher in his Glaubenslehre, probably the founding text of liberal theology. We would do well to remember this as we consider the struggles of the last century and a half between religion and evolutionary theory. To be sure, Darwin's theory of evolution raises a number of conceptual problems for theology, many of which have been discussed throughout our Darwin in Faith summer series. But as faithful people, our solving the conceptual problems does not resolve the tension between religion and science. The tension is not merely thought, but felt, and we must be attentive to the feeling of the tension and the feelings the tension produces if we are to have any chance of such resolution. What is this feeling? I remember about a dozen years ago, traveling from my home in Silver Spring, Maryland, up to Princeton, New Jersey, for a visit with Uncle Doug and Aunt Helen. This was a regular occurrence for my brother and I. While my immediate family were and are avid churchgoers, Doug and Helen were not. I distinctly remember at one point my brother asking Doug if he was a Christian. He replied that he was not. After pondering this for a moment, my brother looked up with raised eyebrows and pronounced, Oh, you're a Hellenist! Given that her own lineage was Greek, Helen was simultaneously delighted and amused by this naive conclusion. On this particular trip, I found myself browsing the copious bookshelves that lined the walls of their Princeton home. I came across a book making the case for evolutionary theory over against religion. This discovery led to a lengthy discussion with Doug about the merits of the theory of evolution and its discrepancies with biblical descriptions of creation. In spite of the fact that Doug is a professor of politics, or more likely because of it, he did not argue his case with anything like the stridency we see in typical political discourse. Instead, he made his points clearly and calmly and invited me to consider and question them in a similar spirit. Indeed, it was not Doug's argumentation that led me to experience for myself the tension between religion and evolution, but the real tension that is there. Coming as I was with what I will charitably call a Sunday school conception of faith, my experience of the life of faith, of God, and of religious experience had very little way of coping with the implications of Darwin's theory. In fact, the tension between religion and science does in part arise from the contradiction between biblical images of creation and the theory of evolution. But this is still a conceptual problem and does not yet get at the feeling. In the face of contradiction, the normal human response is doubt. One of the two views, if contradictory, must be wrong. Religious doubt is especially deep. It reaches to something like what Descartes meant when he said that he doubted everything except that which cannot be doubted, namely, his own existence. 
If he doubted, then there must be a self that doubts, and so he must exist. This is the meaning of his famous statement, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Arriving at this fundamental conclusion, however, required doubting absolutely everything else, all ways of knowing and thinking and understanding the world. At this point, the entire world of meaning and all ways of meaning-making must be completely reconstructed from scratch. Moreover, there must be a process of letting go of the old ways of understanding and finding meaning in the world. There is a loss here, and loss is accompanied by grief. It is no different with the confrontations between religion and science in our own time. The truth that the world comes to be the way we find it and that we come to be the way we are as a result of evolutionary processes requires doubting the Sunday School conception of faith. This is what Professor Wesley Wildman was pointing to in the first sermon of the Darwin and Faith series. There is no simple adjustment to the Sunday School faith, such as saying that the Sunday School God creates through evolution, that does anything like justice to Darwin's theory. Conceptually, Dr. Wildman hit the nail right on the head. But now we must continue on to understand what letting go of a Sunday School faith implies, to see what the process of grief looks like, to examine our own feelings in the tension between religion and science. We are, after all, human beings who have evolved to construct for ourselves worlds of meaning made up of truths that we can depend on. We have not evolved simply to let one world of meaning go and pick up another. If we had, those worlds of meaning would have no value. No, we are tenacious in our beliefs and cling to them precisely because they are valuable. They give us meaning and purpose, direction and confidence. And so, when they break down, we feel the loss and we grieve. To be sure, this process of loss and grief takes place at the personal level. Darwin himself may be the best example of this. Being in training for the Anglican priesthood at Cambridge University when he made his journey on the Beagle, eventually leading to his landmark theory, Darwin had read the leading natural theologies of his day. Most of these, and especially the natural theology of William Paley, are versions of the teleological argument for the existence of God. The argument is to the effect that a world exhibiting such complexity, order, purpose, and beauty as ours must have been created by an intelligent entity. Darwin's theory of evolution, however, is precisely a demonstration of how complexity, order, and beauty come about through the natural process of evolution, which only purpose is survival. Darwin saw and knew the contradiction explicitly. And for the remainder of his life, Darwin remained ambivalent about faith. A letter from 1879 to John Fordyce is revealing. Darwin says, My judgment often fluctuates. Whether a man deserves to be called a theist depends on the definition of the term. In my most extreme fluctuations, I have never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of a god. I think that generally, and more and more so as I grow older, but not always, that an agnostic would be the most correct description of my state of mind. Clearly, Darwin could no longer tolerate his earlier beliefs, but neither would his grief at its loss allow him to abandon faith entirely. Not all grieve in this way. Many do abandon faith. The grieving process takes place at the social level as well. We see this as many Christians resist the teaching of evolution in public schools and advocate the teaching of creationism based on their belief in a personal, purposeful God. We might diagnose this response to the challenge Darwin's theory poses for such Sunday school faith on the Kubler-Ross grief cycle as somewhere amidst the stages of denial, anger, and bargaining. Denial. Such Christians continue in their faith lives as if Darwin had never published on the origin of species. 
anger. Sunday school Christians express anger at the social adoption of evolutionary theory by challenging it in court, by denying that Christians who accept evolutionary theory are true Christians, and by attempting to keep politicians who accept evolutionary theory out of office. Bargaining. Recent advocacy of having creationism taught alongside evolution and the shift from strict creationism to intelligent design theories are attempts at bargaining with evolution. Given that Darwin's theory was published 150 years ago and we are socially only at the fourth of seven stages, halfway there, we can see that the grieving process at the social level, especially where religious beliefs are concerned, can take a very long time indeed. This time frame should not be entirely surprising. After all, the feeling with which Schleiermacher identified religion is not just any feeling. It is the feeling of absolute dependence. But it is hard to understand how we can absolutely depend on God if God turns out not to be who or what we thought. Sunday school faith tells us that God is a person, often imagined as a white man with a beard resting on the clouds, who relates to us as persons, giving us meaning and purpose in our lives. Dean Hill gave us three tools the Boston personalists provide us for engaging with evolutionary theory, but Darwin's theory contradicts personalism's central tenet, namely that personhood is the fundamental category for understanding reality. Evolution points out that the only purpose inherent in the ongoing development of the world is survival. Evolution as a process is tragic, as Alfred North Whitehead understood the term, pointing toward the solemnity of the remorseless working of things. As Dr. Wildman pointed out in relation to Darwin's own struggle with faith, quote, surely such a loving, personal deity would have created in another way, a way that involved less trial and error, fewer false starts, less mindless chance, fewer tragic species extinctions, less dependence on random symbiotic collaborations, fewer pointless cruelties, and less reliance on predation to sort out the fit from the unfit. If evolution is true, as it surely is, then that upon which we absolutely depend is certainly not personal. Upon what then can we depend absolutely? Who is Darwin's God? Darwin's God is a creator God who creates us not personally, but as part of a world that exhibits complexity and beauty and change and chance and order and that presents us with myriad choices, the decisions among which make us who we are. Darwin's God is not scaled to human concern. God is the creator of the H1N1 flu virus just as much as you and I. Darwin's God creates a world not of predetermined outcomes, but of competing interests. Darwin's God creates not the world of utopic idealism, exhibiting a nice, neat, orderly progression, but the messy, mean, and infinitely interesting developments in life. Darwin's God, like Anselm's God, is that than which nothing greater can be thought. As human thinking develops, as it has with Darwin's theory of evolution, that which is greater than human thought and presses it to its limits, must also expand. We can absolutely depend upon God to be more than we could ever imagine or comprehend. Darwin's God is not as attractive as the personal God, because Darwin's God does not care particularly about us. But Darwin's God is more honest about the God we discern in the world God creates whereas the personal God tells us more about our own desires and selfishness than about God in God's self. Darwin's God is absolutely dependable to resist our selfish interpretations and demand humble submission. We can see the unattractiveness of Darwin's God when we consider the present debates about health care reform. Darwin's God 
looks much more like the death panels that conservative politicians and pundits impugn upon reform proposals than anything any senator or congressperson could ever dream up. From the evolutionary perspective, human flourishing would certainly be greatly improved if societies were not encumbered by the old and infirm. Humanity would be much more suited for survival. But none of the proposals in Congress suggest any such thing. Last week, Dr. Rodney Peterson warned us of the dangers of social Darwinism. Indeed, it is incumbent upon us to make wise decisions with regard to health care reform, such that those who need care are cared for, while also stewarding resources responsibly. But these wise decisions must be made in light of the human needs of our present historical moment. They cannot be attributed to a personal divine will and given ultimate cosmic significance. Darwin's God will not accept such responsibility. We stand in the same relation to the teaching about God revealed to us in Darwin as the disciples did to the teaching about God that Jesus offered them in our Gospel reading today. With them we ask, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Jesus knew that accepting it would be difficult, and there would be some who did not believe. And Jesus asks us today, along with the twelve so long ago, do you also wish to go away? The good news of Jesus Christ for us today is that we need not turn away. Like Peter, we can both address the conceptual contradictions and take up our grief at the loss of our Sunday school faith. And so with Peter we can say, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. As we enter into this time of supplication, I invite you to pray in whatever manner allows you to best connect with God. Please kneel, stand, come to the communion rails, speak in a different language, or simply silently be present with the Spirit. And now, please join me in singing, Lead Me, Lord, as printed in your bulletin. God of wonders, you are the Alpha. We thank you for new life and new days, remembering that you were with us before we were born and have walked with us ever since. We pray, Lord, that areas in our life and in our world that have become stagnant might find growth, that progress and cooperation can sprout anew amongst stalemates and dead ends. Bring to us the dawn of reconciliation and peace, transforming war into community, genocide into celebration, 
and suffering into joy, because we also pray to you as the God of today, a present and empowering creator who surely breathes in every cell and atom of creation. So Lord, we give you everything we have, the two copper coins of our life and faith, so that you might live in us, not in some end day plot, but in the everyday realities of our world. Help us to cope with our daily challenges and let us be mindful and supportive of those going through so much more. We remember our sisters looking for work, our brothers searching for a home. We stand together with those without the basic needs of life, food, water, and safety, and those in desperate need of spiritual sustenance, the living bread, the living water. For we who live in abundance, let us never take our blessings for granted. For we who live in scarcity, let us always cherish the faithfulness of a God who will stay with us until the end. Because lastly, precious Lord, you are our Omega. We hold fast to the promise of eternal life, but we do not shy away from the gentle rest of ending. Indeed, we are comforted by the fact that the way things are aren't the way they have to be. Just as a forest, uh, forest can nourish its own soil when its fruit or foliage comes to maturity, we look to the things in our life that by letting go of, we can sustainably live. We let our fears and insecurities go, opening the door to loving. We release our greed and pride, opening the door to living. Help us, dear God, to silence the chatter of pettiness and short-sightedness so that we can simply live for you. And we pray this not only for our individual lives, but as members of a larger body. Our family, be with us. Our church, be with us. Our nation, be with us. And our world. Indeed, in worship of you, O God of all times, we unite our hearts in the words that Jesus taught his disciples to say, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Peace of the Lord be always with you. Hello to all of you here today and on the, um, those who are listening on the airwaves. My name is Elizabeth Fomby. I am the Director of Hospitality here at Marsh Chapel, and I'd just like to welcome you. Um, the first thing I'd like to note is that we do have these red and white pads that are at the end of your pews towards the center aisle. If you would just Take a moment to fill those out so that we can get to know you better and so that you can get to know the names of those who are sitting by you. We would appreciate it. We also have coffee hour downstairs in the Marsh Room, as we always do after the service. We'd love to have you join us there for fellowship and for refreshments. 
I would suggest that in the coming week or two, you might want to check out the chapel's website, which is www.bu.edu chapel. We're going to be putting up a lot of new information, especially regarding the first week activities. We have field trips scheduled, we have fellowship time, we have new discussion groups starting up. So I would really um, take the time to check that out in the next couple weeks. Um, we also have a Common Ground newsletter, which some of you might already be getting. This is a great way to find out what's going on around the chapel during the week and also on the weekends. And so if you're interested in getting this, this is um, an electronic newsletter. It's an email. And if you'd like to receive that, you can just go to the website, again, bu.edu slash chapel. There's a box that says Quick Links. And in the center, there is a link that says Common Ground, which is the name of the newsletter. And you can click on that, and you can sign up for the Common Ground newsletter, which will update you on what's going on around here. So um, I'd love to see you downstairs for coffee hour and in the weeks ahead. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
and great are your blessings, O God. Bless and magnify these our gifts of giving back, that they may continue the work of love and justice in the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, let us remember that life is short, and we do not have too much time to gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us. So be swift to love, and make haste to be kind. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit abide and remain with you, now and always. Amen. Mm -hmm.